Well, go ahead and grab a Bible with me and open it to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We'll begin reading in verse 36 here in just a moment. Why don't you join me in prayer as well as we seek the Lord's face today. Father, we come before you today, and Lord, we, Lord, thank you for this declaration of truth that comes from Scripture that indeed the battle belongs to the Lord. And Lord, we remind ourselves of that. We declare that. We praise you for that because we know you are sovereign. You are almighty. And you are glorious. And Lord, I thank you for this weekly reminder that we have in our lives and in our calendars and in our schedules that reminds us that the name of Jesus is above every name. That every name in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every problem, every trial, every principality, every power, everything, will one day bow the knee to Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for that truth and that reality. And Lord, we praise you as sovereign, as our victorious warrior, as our king, as our Christ. Lord, we thank you that for that individually, whatever battles that we face in this life, that we know that you are greater than any of those and you will bring us through to Zion City. Lord, even in this last week, as I watched the Olympic Games and was reminded just that there are many tribes and nations and languages and people groups in the world that do not yet know you as Savior and Lord. Some that completely do not have even the gospel, even the Bible in their language, or even translated the name of Jesus into their language. No known Christians in those areas. But Lord, we know that that battle belongs to you as well. And Lord, we know from your word that one day there will be people from every single one of those tribes and nations, nations and languages and people gathered around their throne, gathering around your throne, bowing the knee before you. And so, Lord, we long for that day. And Lord, we pray for our missionaries. We pray for our Bible translators. We pray for those who are working so tirelessly on the fields to bring the gospel to the world. Lord, I pray for their encouragement. I pray for their strength. Lord, I pray that they would rest in Jesus as the victorious warrior, knowing that indeed their work will bring, bring to pass the salvation of sinners. And Lord, we also look in the news and we see this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And Lord, we know that many believers in Ukraine are, are caught in the crosshairs here. And so Lord, we pray that whatever outcome this faces, that you give the leaders wisdom, but Lord, also that you would make the gospel go forth like never before in Ukraine and even spreading it around that whole region, spreading it to Russia, because we know that Christ indeed is the answer. We pray for the churches there that you would strengthen them in the midst of these difficult times. Lord, we thank you that whatever battle we face, that it belongs to you because you have already won the decisive battle through your cross and resurrection. Speak to us now as we open your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36 and reading through verse 46. Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words. 
Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, So, couldn't you stay awake with me for one hour? Stay awake and pray that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. They came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. Lord, drawing us near to the cross, drawing us near to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would also help us to be aware of how we need to respond to this passage, striving for holiness, loving our Christ even more. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd work during this time together, Lord, for those who don't know you, who are not yet Christians. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would come to know Jesus. For those of us who are believers, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts and lives to draw us near to you. Lord, I know I can't do this passage justice without your spirit upon me and upon all of us to hear your word. So Lord, I pray, fill us with your spirit. Help us to hear what you would have us to, what you would say to us today. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here in this passage, we are on holy ground. This is holy ground. There's no other way to describe this passage. Because here in this passage, we see a picture of our Lord and Savior like no other. This is a picture of Jesus that we have been unprepared to see up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. In his own sermon on this passage, C.H. Spurgeon said the following, he said, Here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation. More than for human language. In the moments before his arrest, we have a Messiah that we were not anticipating up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. Here we see Jesus in anguish. Jesus in anguish. Jesus staggering 
under the weight of the contemplation of the cross and all that it would mean for him. All that it would mean for our Savior. Think of all that Jesus had done up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus was the greatest teacher that has ever existed in the history of humanity. When Jesus would preach, when Jesus would teach, your heart would just burn within you. Jesus is the one who spoke all of the words in the Sermon on the Mount. Just a few weeks ago, we, we heard Jesus as, as Jesus was preaching on the end times there on the Mount of Olives, the same mountain in which he is at this point in time. Jesus has defeated the devil. Jesus has cast out demons. He healed lepers. He opened blind eyes. He fed 5,000 people. He's fed 4,000 people. Jesus walked on the water. Jesus has raised the dead. Jesus confronted the Pharisees. He confronted the religious people. Jesus loved the children. And Jesus made disciples. Jesus did all of these things. Jesus predicted his death and resurrection three times, even four times already here in the Gospel of Matthew. This moment is not a surprise to Jesus. It has not taken Jesus unaware. And yet, here in this moment, as Jesus considers the cross and what is coming this night, he staggers. He can't even stand under the weight of what he is about to face. We're not unfamiliar in Matthew with the humanity of Jesus. We know that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully human as well. We have seen Jesus. Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus and his family. We know his genealogy according to the flesh. We've watched as the young family fled away from Herod as Herod threatened the death of all of the children, all of the males under a certain age in, in, in Bethlehem. We've been with Jesus as he was baptized, as Jesus identified with us, as Jesus walked up to John there in the Jordan. John was, pre John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the only one who didn't need to get in that line is Jesus. And yet Jesus gets in that line because Jesus is identifying with us. That is our Savior. He fasted for 40 days. He was hungry. He got tired and he slept through a storm. We know that Jesus was indeed tempted. Jesus expressed righteous anger against the sellers in the temple. Jesus faced temptation. He overcame the devil. We know the humanity of Jesus, but nothing in Matthew prepares us for this here in Matthew 26, we encounter something unique, something other, something holy. Here in Matthew 26 in Gethsemane, we see a Savior in anguish. We see a Savior who is deeply troubled. Jesus brings his disciples to an olive orchard. They go into the olive orchard. Might be an olive press located there. Perhaps this, this garden was owned by the same guy that owned the upper room. We're not really sure, but somehow Jesus has been given access to this particular walled garden there on this, on, on this Mount of Olives here in named Gethsemane. This olive grove named Gethsemane. 
Maybe it's a fenced area. We don't really know for sure, but he takes the disciples there about midnight. They walk into this particular garden. He leaves eight disciples. Judas has already rejected him, looking to betray him. He leaves eight of his disciples at the gate. He calls three of them, Peter, James, and John, to go deeper with him into the garden. And then in verse 37, it says, Jesus began to be sorrowful. Jesus was troubled. It's something new. We know from the Old Testament that Jesus would be a Savior who is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but this depth of His sorrow reaches an entirely different level. We might go up to the Savior and ask, why, why are you so exceedingly sorrowful? Just how sorrowful are you, Jesus? And that moment Jesus says there in verse 36 and 37, and even into 38, He says, I am sorrowful to the point of death. I'm sorrowful to the point of death. Some of you know what that kind of sorrow might be like or a glimpse of what that kind of sorrow is like. As you have grieved the loss of a loved one. As you've grieved the loss of a friend who was so close to you. It's a picture of what Jesus is experiencing here, but, but even, at a, even at a deeper level, some of you have even sat across the chair from a doctor who has given you the news that indeed you are facing the last days of your life. Some of you have heard that conversation as well. But here in this passage, here is the Savior that is facing His impending death. He is anguishing over what is about to happen in the moments ahead of Him. He is staggering. He asked the disciples, remain here for a little while. Remain here for a little while while I pray. Stay awake with me, please. Please. I need you. Stay awake. My closest, dearest friends in the world, at this moment, would you stay awake and pray with me? Jesus walks a little further and collapses under the weight of his burden. He staggers. He falls on his face. And Jesus prays, My Father, if it is possible. All things are possible for you. Let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Why is Jesus in such anguish? There are two questions that I want to answer in our time together today. And the first question is this. Why did, what did Gethsemane mean to Jesus. What did Gethsemane mean to Jesus? And the second question is like it. It's what does Gethsemane mean to us? So what did Gethsemane mean to Jesus? And second question, what does Gethsemane mean to us? First question, first answer, two answers for each question. Number one is this. Jesus was facing total abandonment. 
Jesus was facing total abandonment. As Jesus prayed that night, he knew that he would be increasingly alone from this moment on. In fact, the abandonment of our Savior had already begun there at the Last Supper. Jesus was at the Last Supper. Judas left the Last Supper, abandoned Jesus, walking out into the night, having already made a deal with the chief priest, went to seek out the chief priest because he knew exactly where he would betray the Savior. He would betray Jesus into their hands. There at that particular meal, all of his disciples professed, including Peter, professed their undying devotion to Jesus. Even if we have to die with you, Jesus... We will never deny you. We will never desert you. And Jesus looks at him and says, even this night, you're all going to fall away. Peter says, not me. They might, but I won't. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, even before the rooster crows, Peter, you will deny me three times. They come to the garden. Here in our passage, Jesus is praying in anguish, can't even stand, falling on his face. Luke says he is sweating like drops of blood, his his skin hemorrhaging around him, sweating drops of blood. And yet at that moment when he needs his dearest friends the most, he looks over and they are asleep. They're asleep as the Savior is in anguish. He wakes them up once and he says, Stay awake. Stay awake. You are undergoing temptation. Stay awake and pray. By the way, right there, we have a means, a way that which we can battle temptation. You want to know one of the most effective ways to battle temptation in your life? It's prayer. (laughs) In fact, every time you're tempted, it comes with a dual temptation because when you are tempted in a certain thing, at that very moment, you are also being tempted not to pray. Because when you are facing temptation, that is also the very moment when you are most tempted not to go to the Lord in prayer to receive the time, to receive the help that is so available from His hands. But in that particular moment, the disciples are asleep. Jesus is being abandoned. Judas comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss. Then at the end of verse 56, we see that all of the disciples desert Jesus and they run away. By the end of this chapter, we see that Peter also deserts Jesus because by the end of this chapter, Peter is basically cussing everybody out, saying, how dare you say that I followed him? I am not a follower of Jesus. I do not know the man. In the book of Luke, at that very moment, Peter locks eyes with Jesus across the courtyard At that very moment when he hears the rooster crow, Jesus is going to be abandoned. Jesus was abandoned by his friends. Eventually, Jesus would stand before the crowds. Choose Jesus or choose the violent usurper murderer Barabbas. Barabbas, meaning the word Bar Abbas, meaning son of the father. Everybody chooses this pretend son of the father rather than the true son of the father. And they cry out, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. We want Barabbas. The crowds reject Jesus. Jesus is abandoned by society. He's abandoned by his friends. He's abandoned by the religious leaders. He's abandoned by the politicians. He's abandoned by the culture. He's abandoned by the Jews. He's abandoned by the Gentiles. He's abandoned by us all. At that moment at Gethsemane, Jesus is anticipating being abandoned by the very world that he created by the word of his power. He is going to be abandoned by us all. 
and in doing no damage to the mystery of the Trinity. When Jesus hangs on the cross, as the sin of the world is placed upon him, the Father will turn his face away and Jesus will be abandoned by his Father as well. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, Jesus will cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is Gethsemane? Why is Jesus staggering? Why is Jesus on his face? Why is Jesus in such sorrow at this moment is because he is anticipating what is about to happen. He is about to face total abandonment. Indeed, Jesus suffered and died alone. Maybe you've been alone before. I know I've felt loneliness before at times in my life. Remember one particular time I felt alone? It was when I got the phone call that my my granddad had died. My grandpa Southern had died. And I remember sitting in my car. I was all by myself. And I was thinking, I'm, I'm by myself. I mean, if I call 836-8944, nobody's going to answer. He's not there anymore. And I remember I felt, but even in that moment when I felt alone, I wasn't alone because I still have my family. I still, I still have my dad. I still have my kids. I still have my wife. I still had, but, but, this is on another level. Jesus is totally alone. Number two, what does the cross mean for Jesus? Jesus is about to be abandoned by the world. Number two, Jesus faced enduring the wrath of God as he bore the sin of the world. Why is Jesus, Jesus staggering in this moment? Why is Jesus in such ang anguish? It's because Jesus is facing enduring the wrath of God as he bears the sin of the world. You know, oftentimes in, in sermons, I will try to come up with illustrations. And we should, illustrations are great. There are, there are windows into the text that open up the, the light of the text, that open up light into our lives and allow the, the, the Bible to shine into our lives, opening up windows to allow the Bible to shine in our lives. And I thought a lot about, how do you illustrate this? How do you illustrate what Jesus is about to endure here in this passage? And I looked around, I read all kinds of books and read all kinds of commentary. Where is an illustration? I came to the conclusion that... There can be no illustration. There's nothing in our experience. There's nothing in our understanding. There's nothing in our history. There's nothing in our own lives that can compare to what Jesus is going to endure here in this passage. This is the Savior doing something that only the Savior can do. That only Jesus can do at this moment. There is no illustration of this. In the garden, Jesus prays three times the exact same prayer. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. What is the cup that gives Jesus such a sense of dread here in this passage? What is this cup that he is referring to? What, what, is, he, what is he talking about? What cup is he being asked to drink? The Old Testament tells us the answer to that question. 
What is this cup that makes Jesus stagger in this moment? Psalm chapter, uh, there's a lot of places you could look for this, but let me give you two. Psalm 75 verse 8 says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's the cup. It's a cup meant for the wicked of the world, sinners. It's a cup that is meant for sinners. What is the cup? Isaiah chapter 51 tells us the answer. Isaiah 51, 17 tells us the answer. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of of staggering that's the cup it's the cup of the wrath of God against sin Jesus is looking at this cup full of the righteous holy furious foaming wrath of God against the sin of the world and Jesus is going to drink that cup on our behalf that is what causes Jesus to stagger. What Jesus is waiting, weighted down with here in this passage is not the physical torture that he's about to face. It's not that there is something deeper, some, something much more cosmic, something much greater that he is about to endure. As he is hanging on that cross, Jesus is going to bear the wrath of God against our sin. Think about it. He is the sinless, pure, righteous, holy, spotless, perfect Lamb of God from eternity past, never known any sin, never sinned, never known any spot or blemish, always having perfect fellowship with the Father in heaven, always gets all of His prayers answered, perfect fellowship with God. His perfections know no end, only knowing blessing and affirmation from the Father. And yet, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he will experience the wrath of God against sin. What happens to Jesus on that cross is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, exactly what he's anticipating in this moment. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus is anticipating. The Father is going to make him, Jesus, willingly, Jesus does this willingly for us, him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was in anguish because he was anticipating becoming sin for us all. He's anticipating all of your sin, all of your rebellion, all of your saying yes to yourself and no to Jesus. All of that is going to be imputed to Jesus. The unstained one would bear the stains of our sins, the righteous, furious wrath of God poured out in our place for our rebellion. That is what Jesus is anticipating in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's looking into that cup, the furious wrath of God, that it should be ours. And He is going to pay sin's price. He is going to bear the wrath of God. 1 John 2, 2 says it like this. He is the propitiation for our sins. 
And not only for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's a propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only, but also for the whole world. What is, that's a big word. What does that mean? What does that word propitiation mean? It's not a word we used often. What, is, what does that mean? I, I need to look that up. Well, I looked it up. And the great definition comes from Wayne Grudem's his systematic theology. Here's what he says. What is Jesus doing? Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath towards us into favor. That's what Jesus is anticipating. Jesus is going to endure as a propitiation. He is going to endure the wrath of God to the end, to the uttermost, to the fullest. He's going to endure the wrath of God and in so doing, satisfy that wrath so that all that is left for us who are in Jesus is the favor and the blessing of God, the grace and mercy of our Father. That is what Jesus is anticipating at Gethsemane. Jesus anticipates drinking down the full cup of the wrath of God. He anticipates the cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, as he's contemplating this, as he's thinking about this, he says to his father, he prays to his father, he says, Father, if it is possible, all things are possible with you. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He prays the same prayer three times. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. At that moment, all Jesus heard from heaven was silence. Have you ever prayed and all you seemed to hear from heaven was silence? Jesus can relate to you. Have you ever prayed and maybe your prayer wasn't answered in the way you would prefer it? Jesus understands. In this moment, all Jesus hears, Jesus willingly is going to the cross, of course. All Jesus hears in this moment is silence. Why does Jesus hear silence in this moment? It's because there is no other way. The only way for your sin to be dealt with, for my sin to be dealt with, the only way for us to be right with God, the only way for God to be maximally glorified in the salvation of sinners, the only way for us to go to heaven, the only way for us to not go to hell, the only way for us to be forgiven, the only, only, only way is for Jesus in deep, deep, deep love for you, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son and Jesus goes willingly to the cross so that you could be forgiven. That is what as Jesus is anticipating. Jesus died on the cross, willingly taking our sin, willingly taking the wrath of God for us. That is what Jesus is anticipating in Gethsemane. Second question. How should we respond? How should we respond to Gethsemane? 
What should this passage do in our souls? What kind of work should this passage do in our hearts? Two answers to that question as well. Number one is this. Recoil at the horror of your sin. Recoil at the horror of your sin. When we come to Gethsemane, we are confronted with the bold facts about the great cost of our rebellion against God. The great cost of our sin against Christ. Sin isn't just, oops. Isn't just, oh well. This is what our sin did. This is what our rebellion did to the Savior. It's eternally serious. It's deadly serious. You may not see yourself as a rebel. Rebel. You may not see yourself as really all that bad. You maybe you see yourself as a as a genuinely good person, but but this passage just throws all of that out the window. It is exhibit A against us that indeed we are not. We don't have it together. We're not genuinely good people. Indeed, this is what it costs. This is what our sin costs. Savior in anguish in the garden. None of us have loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us love our neighbor as ourselves. All of us are in need of the Savior. Spurgeon, about this very issue, he says the following. He says, As the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. And that is true. If you don't understand your own sinfulness, my friends, you are deceived. You are a sinner. You are separated from God because of your sin. You do need this Savior. The Bible says we are all sinners fallen short of the glory of God. There's no way around it. We have all defied His ways and His righteousness. All of us, every single one of us. In fact, every one of us just every day, right? It's hard to live perfectly. None of us do. We all need this Savior. Jesus bore all of our sins on the cross to Calvary. All of our sin was placed upon Him, and He gifts us the righteousness of God through faith. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, if you're not yet a Christian, I want to tell you, I'm really glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. Because I've got some really good news for you. And then everything that we've been talking about today, Jesus did this for you. Jesus did this for you. Jesus, in this moment, is anticipating bearing your sin. He is anticipating going to the cross and hanging there in agony for your sake, for your sin. He died and he went into the grave and three days later he rises again from the grave. He is alive and he offers forgiveness and mercy and grace full and free to everyone who will trust in him, who will believe in him. That this isn't just some historical thing from the past. That This is the very truth of God, the reality of God, the saving truth of God. What God did to save you from your sin so that you could be purchased into his kingdom. Will you trust in him? 
Will you rest in him by faith? Will you say, I believe this is true. I believe I'm a sinner. I know I need Jesus. Talk to God for the first time in your life and say, God, I believe in you. I trust you that you died on the cross for my sin and rose again from the grave. If, the Bible, if you do that, the Bible says you will, have, you will be born again. You will have new life. Your sin will be taken away and you will have a relationship with God. That's your first step. Many of us in this room are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, one of the purposes of this passage, one of the purposes of Gethsemane is to let Gethsemane fuel your battle against sin. Let Gethsemane fuel your battle against sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we, with the purpose of this, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. How do you fight sin? You contemplate the cross. You think about the cross. You think about it a lot. And you think about it in that moment of temptation. This is what my sin costs. This is what my sin does and did. And as we contemplate the cross, as we think about the cross, as we meditate on what Jesus endured and suffered for us, we realize we take our own sinfulness, we take our own sinful flesh, we take our own sinful nature to the cross and we crucify it there. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives me, Galatians 2.20 says. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Spend a lot of time at the cross. We're about to come into the season of... We're, 40 days before Christ, before Easter, when people think more about the cross and the resurrection, we're going to be thinking, we're going to be walking through the passages on the cross. I want you to think a lot about the cross. We think a lot about what Jesus endured for you. And as you linger in Gethsemane, thinking about the cost of your sin, thinking about the crucifixion of the Savior and the freedom that He won, let it free you and empower your war against sin. First response, we should recoil at the horror of our sin. Second response is this, we should embrace the deep, deep love and grace of Jesus. We should embrace the deep love of Jesus. When we come to Gethsemane, we gain a deeper experience of the grace and the love of Jesus. Jesus was motivated in this moment to drink this cup by his love for the Father and, listen, and his love for you. Jesus saw what it was going to take, he knew what was about to happen, and he said, Yes. I will win them. I will do this so that I can have a relationship with them, with you. That is what our Savior has done for us. Know the love of Jesus that He willingly laid down His life as a ransom for our sins. Think about this. Have you ever considered that there are actually two cups in this passage? There are actually two cups in Matthew chapter 26. We talked about the first cup a couple of weeks ago. You see it in verses 26 through verse 35. The cup that Jesus gives to the disciples at the Passover at the Last Supper. There's two cups in this passage. The first cup Jesus gives to the disciples at the Passover at the Last Supper. What does Jesus say about this cup? He says, this cup is the covenant in my blood. 
a covenant, an agreement, a bringing together a reconciliation of you and God. And he gives his disciples this cup. He says, drink of this cup, all of it. Drink of it full and free. It is offered to you to take into your hands and to drink. Jesus puts it into our hands fully and freely by his grace. And it represents the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is the cup we don't deserve. That's not what I deserve. I deserve the other one. I deserve the cup of the wrath of God. And yet the very cup I do not deserve, you don't deserve, Jesus gives us this cup and says, drink full and free what I'm about to do for you. Oh, that's not the only cup. Jesus takes a cup that we deserve. The wrath of God. And he takes it out of our hands. And he drinks that one in our place. He gives us the cup at the supper and he takes this other cup out of our hands of the furious full wrath of God against sin. And on the cross, Jesus drinks that cup all the way down of the furious wrath of God against sin as a sin of a whole world, as my sin, Travis Southern's sin, as your sin is placed upon Jesus. Jesus takes the cup of the wrath of God and he drinks it all the way down to the last drop. He turns that cup over on the table and at the end he says it is finished the debt is paid in full and those who trust in Jesus will never know the wrath of God ever 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 for all of eternity to the last ever you can ever imagine you will never know the wrath of God because Jesus paid it all all to him we owe That is what our Savior has done for us on the cross. I love what D.A. Carson says about this. He says, in the first garden, not your will but mine changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. That is what Gethsemane means to us. My challenge for you today is spend a lot of time thinking about Jesus and the cross. Spend a lot of time thinking about Gethsemane and all that Jesus has done for you Let it fuel your battle against sin. And know that the Savior who defeated death, who defeated sin, is the Savior who's right there with you to battle with you. The battle belongs to Him. And then, I want you to think a lot about how much your Savior loves you. Jesus loves you. And He gave His life as a ransom for your soul. If you've never trusted in Christ, I want to encourage you to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. I also encourage you as believer to use this time of invitation, this time of response, and this time of meditation to come to do business with the Lord. Spend a moment in prayer. Spend a moment in thanksgiving. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Spend a moment confessing your sin to God. Asking God to help you, forgive you, and to help you in your own battle, in your own war against sin. Jesus offers grace full and free. In fact, think about this. Jesus has already paid for all the wrath for all of that. 
He invites you to come to his table full and free to receive his grace and his forgiveness. Believer, receive that grace and forgiveness today. Pray for empowerment through the cross and the resurrection in your battle against sin. Let's spend a moment of silence and think about these things, meditate on these things, and let's respond together here in a moment as the Lord leads. Let's spend a moment of silence to allow the Lord to do the work in our hearts. Lord, as we think about this passage and these things, we recognize that Jesus, you were the only way, and you are the only way, the truth and the life. Lord, we thank you that even as you staggered, crying out to your Father, sweating drops of blood, that you willingly gave your life that you willingly endured the wrath of God. You willingly took on our sin as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God dying in our place. And Lord, we are stunned. We are in awe once again at your great love and grace. And Lord, I pray that as we are in awe of you and your love for us, Lord, I pray that it would empower us in our battle against sin. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for our unrighteousness. Thank you that you paid it all. And Lord, I pray that this week as we think about the cross, Lord, that we would use the means of prayer and you would help us to use the tools of meditating on the cross and help us to battle against our sin, taking the flesh to the cross every day. And Lord, I pray also that you would help us in our own lives to know the deep, deep love of our Savior for us. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you as Savior, and Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. I pray for those who do know you, and maybe wonder, does, does God really love, does God really care? And Lord, I pray that they have looked at Gethsemane and said, the answer is absolutely yes. My God loves me. My Savior loves me. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. Work during this time of response, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.